Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Unfiltered, which features Armando Yanucci, a man I haven't met before today, but whose work has probably tickled me more than almost anyone else alive. Alan Partridge, the day-to-day, right through to the thick of it, Veep over in America, um, sundry other projects, and now The Death of Stalin, which is not only the first film to give the finest British actor of his generation, Simon Russell Beale, the film role he so desperately deserves, but also to, to bring another ensemble cast together in in um, in ways that are truly hilarious. I'm really, really looking forward to this. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered, Armando Yanucci. Hi. Hello. We're, Hi. We're very glad to have you here. Um, not least because your CV reads like a pretty much a greatest hits of the funniest things on, on British screens over the course of the last two decades. It's been a long time. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, people know. Talk. I remember when I used to be a young Turk. Did you? Yeah, the, the future. You no, were the I'm future just, once. No, I'm just a Turk. Uh, no, uh, we are. We're going to get stuck right into yeah. the new film, Death of Stalin. But but before we do that, two things occurred to me just mm. on the way here. The first was we were Robert Webb was our guest last oh, week, yeah. and he was very interesting on the period in his career in his late twenties when they'd cracked the writing side of it, but it was beginning to look like they were never going to be performers. And right. that there was a tension for him and, and David Mitchell. There was very much a, a kind of, well, we really, really want to perform. Yeah. You're fascinating in many ways because you've done both. You've cracked both and you appear to have satisfied most of your performing yeah, urges. I mean, t- when I started, I went through the same sort of angst. Didn't Did you? It? You know, <clears throat> I've always written and, and I used to, you know, always perform my own material. I, I've never thought of myself as an actor in terms of being able to do other characters and so on. Um but actually, it started to dawn on me that I might not be as good a performer as other people. And then when you started, you know, and I started as a radio producer, really, in terms of comedy, working with the likes of Steve Coogan and Chris Morris. Chris, who had, you know, a kind of same kind of background as me as working up from local radio and rather than live kind of performing. And I suddenly realized, you know, 
he's heaps better than me, and Steve's far, far better than me. But you were, but you were comparing <laughs> yourself to two of the biggest talents ever. You could, you possibly, yeah. Could but at the time, they were just you know two right. of the people that I work with. Of course, you know, of course, they went on to become massive talents, and and because they were really good. But at the time, I could see they were really good, and and that's when I thought maybe I should just stick to the the behind the desk and the behind the kind of camera. So you didn't, you don't have an overdeveloped look at me, Gene. Then not anymore. I did go through a period. I think. When we were doing the day to day, I, I went through a period of, of of just not angsting, not that I should be in it, but just angsting that I should be recognised as part of the creative team behind it, given that I wasn't in it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? That was yes. the concern for me. But actually, I shouldn't have been. I should have just enjoyed the ride, really, and Things not been so worried. <laughs> it's been fine. <laughs> it's turned out okay. <laughs> do you get? I mean, do you, do you get recognised much then? Because it, 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 occasionally, funny enough, we were just having lunch across the road mm. at pret a and somebody came up and said can i just shake your hand please oh, for nice. just all the laughs and i get about that once every couple of days and again that's fine that's, that's all my ego needs that's good to i know. don't need uh you know people kind of pestering you and following you and being outside your door or anything like that and of course being know. a director feeds for want of a better word, it feeds the ego in a very different way. You have all the power. You the have film. complete. You can turn into a complete <laughs> dictator. I'm I mean, sure. It is, you can, and you're not, you not. I can see why you read these stories of Hollywood directors who have just gone crazy and do terrible things to their cast and push them to the limit, because you're suddenly in charge of a massive machine that is costing someone a lot of money. Uh, and you're in charge of it. No one wants to get it wrong, so everyone will obey your every whim. And and it's fine if you're doing a very short shoot for about six weeks. Even then, you yes. know, I come home and my wife says, you're still acting like a director because I'm going, right, I want a cup of tea. <laughs> Should we go for a walk? Yes. yes, let's go. Right, where are the dogs? Bring the dogs. Okay. Right, we're going out the door now. You know, you, and it takes me about two weeks to stop doing that. Because, um, because your word is law on a you, film set. And, and I can see how if you're doing a production, you know, you hear all the stories about the shooting of Apocalypse Now and yes. all that, you know, you're in another country, no one can get at you, you're in charge of now this tribe that you've kind of yes. created around you. Uh, you can go off your nut, I'm sure you can. Touch of the curtsies, actually. Yeah, um, well, ironically exactly. Enough, yeah, 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 yeah. One for our... Um, Conrad readers. Uh, Can we, let's just track back a bit, if we may, because people won't be aware that you started in local radio, or a lot of people won't be aware. And, and d ditto Chris Morris. It's an odd, yeah. it's, it's hard to imagine that journey being able to happen today. I mean, you must have had quite a lot of freedom and... Yeah, I was really lucky, actually, because I started Radio Scotland. So it was both local and national yes. simultaneously. You know, it was part of the kind of the regions. Uh, but and, and, and you had the benefit in that, environment as, as you know where you can do a bit of everything mm. you present you 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 i was allowed to write produce get the sound effects in get in other actors i was able to edit i was able to work with the sports department the news department just to get their style if i was parodying any of their shows so i was able to do a bit of everything but because it was also a national station it had all the best resources so it wasn't like some, you know, sticky tape kind of tiny little booth come toilet sure. in radio kind of tiny, tiny place. Yes. It was, you know, it was a national station. So it was a fantastic training. And, and what were the first programmes that you made? What were well, I, I did this thing that we, we, we had a football commentator called Archie McPherson. Um, and this show was called Know the Archie McPherson Show. Don't know why. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. But there, it, was, it was Radio Scotland launching its new appeal for youth you know, the under 60s, 
you know, the non-Kaylee uh, audience. Got you. Um, and Crucial. So, Holy Grail. Oh, radio yeah. Program. It's a sweet spot. Yeah. And um, they were after some young presenters. So it was me and Eddie Mayer. And <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes. Was it really? And a few others, you know. Goodness and we were doing music, you know. Yes. And uh, But I was there to supply some comic content as well and that's my training ground i was just allowed to just get on with it so you didn't you didn't want to be a journalist or a, i mean no. you, you literally managed to get a gig at a, a, a national radio station yeah 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 where you were given complete freedom to do whatever yeah, you wanted but, yeah but it was mostly to turn up every wednesday night and present the show sure uh, and and also the benefit of doing live radio was great as well and then you start learning you know this is a little bit that then channels into partridge yes. you learn the kind of what it is that a live yes. radio producer has to go through uh, it's like cadences, isn't um, it? <laughs> you know the fact that dead air is a crime and yes. all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and, and no, I didn't. I and when I became and then got applied for a job as a producer in, in uh, BBC Radio in London, comedy, comedy, yes. yeah. But I was very soon put on a training course with other new producers. Uh, who were from magazine programs and from news and current affairs and all that sort of thing, features. Uh, and uh, our project was at the end of the week to come up with a 10 minute, you know, magazine or news show. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that because, you know, I want to do comedy. But I've got these reporters and presenters and journalists here. So why don't we do a fake news program? And and so that's what I did in that week. And, and that 10 minute tape became the, the start of on the hour which then became the day-to-day -day, which you know spurred so everything. that i mean so it was, was a happy kind of yeah and a fairly seamless really. progression yeah you know, from early days there i was just reflecting on, on you describing fake news with an entirely different i know resonance to what I it has know. today there, doesn't there it? it was jolly <laughs> instead of this kind <laughs> I know, of orwellian nightmare that we're in now <laughs> so did oh, on which we, we will discuss further but yeah. did you there did you meet chris morris and, and alan partridge and david schneider and peter bainham and people at that stage you mean steve you, coogan i did but i beg your <laughs> Yes, of course yes. I mean Steve Coogan. I should have let you run with that, actually. Um, and then I should have said things like, and have you interviewed but, but Alan later Partridge? on, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, no, what I did, yeah, so I was new, just down in London. I heard this guy on what was called GLR then, the yes. BBC London Radio, called Chris Morris doing a Saturday morning show in which he did parodies of news shows and DJs and so on. I got in touch with him and said, look, I want to do this fake news show. Uh, do, do, do you want to come along for the ride? Um, I had seen people like Patrick Marber perform, Rebecca Front, um, Steve Coogan. I had just seen on television as an impressionist, and right. I know he did Spitting Image and stuff like that. I just wanted a group of people who could be, who could do lots of voices and characters, but but could hopefully um, be a little bit more spontaneous and um, improvisatory and so it would all sound very natural and very real. But you, so I you, got that team together. You, you, you describe it very naturally. Yeah. When did you first get an inkling that something quite remarkable was happening? Or, or did you ever? You uh, must have done. Well, we okay. thought something funny was happening. Yes. I mean, Chris is just great. He's, and his content, you know, he would go off 
break into GLR at night and record stuff through the night. Very mercurial as well. I interviewed yes, Charlie Brooker and they, they collaborated on Nathan Barley. Oh, Nathan Barley, yeah, it yeah, took yeah. years for the project. Sometimes he'd just sit there looking at Chris Morris for a couple of hours <laughs> and the meeting would be over. That won't surprise you, I don't imagine. No, I mean, Chris, I, my first meeting with Chris was uh, at, at the BBC and he'd got his car outside but he couldn't park it. So we got in the car and we literally drove round Broadcasting House for two hours coming up with On The Hour and we shared the same kind of love of radio yes. and radio comedy uh we were both roughly the same age we were both went to jesuit catholic school he was at stonyhurst wasn't stonyhurst he? Yes. so we had shared some of the same teachers strangely oh really yeah. oh wow so there was this shared kind of experience um and you know and after the end of the two hours you know saving himself a parking fee we we'd come up with on the hour um so that and yes it happened very quickly and i think I remember when we did a little bit of the improvising and, you know, Steve started improvising stuff and it was hysterically funny. And then uh, I think episode two, when I, I had asked him to come up with a sports presenter right. voice and this slightly higher pitched at the time kind of voice came out. But we fell about. And must have done. somebody said, quick as a flash, he's called Alan. And someone else said, and he's a partridge. You know, it was instant. And I think when in the second episode we had this thing about Alan being obsessed with groin injury and improvising interviews with Linford Christie and, you know, a tennis star and a whatever. And him improvising about the groin. And just tell me a bit more about, I mean, the, the strain as the sinews in the upper groin area must, you know, the, the, the impact... We were on the floor, and I think at that point we thought there's something, something good here. I didn't think Alan would last for like 25 years. Yeah, still going. But also with Chris and his like bizarre, you know, that thing of taking a totally stupid, bonkers idea, but saying it with a straight face. Yeah. I think we felt we were doing something new. Yes, I get sent pictures of that. Every time I present Newsnight, I don't know why. <laughs> kind of weird, super stern yeah. demeanor. Um, yeah. Where did you see it then, in, in in terms of comedy tradition? Where would you have thought then? I mean, if you allowed yourself such a sort of self-regarding contemplation, where would you have seen it as as, as fitting into the? Because it I, seems a bit out of the blue to me. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, I just thought it's 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 a sketch show masquerading as not a sketch show. Right. You know, yes. it's 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 and and also I felt. For me, the excitement was the comedy was sometimes about the techniques of the medium itself, rather than just it be um, very, very scripted dialogue. It was about, I mean, I did reports. We did these reports where I would interview each of the characters and they'd have a set number of funny things, funny bits of information to say, but I'd get them to say it in their own words. And then like a genuine news reporter, I would take away the tapes and cut it together like a three minute piece because then you'd get the rhythms of the, the jumps, but you'd get the condensed yes. highlights yes. of the of the item. It was a lot of work. Yeah, and then the jingles. You'd be doing and, razors as well, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, it was it's white splicing tape, tape pencils and, Amazing. And, and razors in the middle of the night again just breaking into we had the run of broadcasting house so i could i could break into some of you know radio one's just amazing desks at night and and muck about with that and, and then TV, and it was fun tv came knocking fairly swiftly very very swiftly with with both their knowing me and you and and uh on the air going out and then very quickly and alan yentop was 
head of BBC Two at the time, and he said, Let, let's make both, you know, pilot both, but let's make both. So I knew that this year was looming where I was, I, I hadn't made any television, and no, Chris hadn't made it. So we were learning how to make television, well, at the same time, learning how to subvert television, and it was a, you know, it was a long process. But You'd have to be young to have the balls to do that, wouldn't I, you? Well, to have the energy as yes, well. Yes, of course, that too. No, I think you're right. I think, I think our... Uh, what helped us was we knew too little. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. We, there wasn't a kind of, well, this is how you normally do it, so why don't we do this instead? There was just a kind of, well, I don't know how you do it, so why don't we just do this, you know? Um, okay, we want it to look like something from the 1950s. Well, let's go. There's a museum in Bradford, a museum of television. Let's just borrow one of their cameras from the 1950s and just do that. Perfect. You know, <laughs> let's make this. I remember, you know, I wanted to make an American report look really sort of sashy and kind of degraded. And I remember the technicians were coming up with all sorts. So I think it didn't look right. And in the end, we, we recorded it onto VHS. I pulled the VHS tape out, stamped on it, <laughs> scrunched it up, rolled it back in, and then we played it again. And, and it then did exactly the, you know, what you wanted. That kind of the Fantastic. basics, you know. And, and that, I mean, really, I didn't realise how quick that, that process had been from Scotland to, yeah, to television. Yeah. And after that, really, you, you've piled triumph upon triumph, haven't you? <laughs> has, there, has there ever been a period of professional insecurity? In your life? Oh, always. And, and you know, always, uh, I, 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 I go into every project thinking, well, this is going to be an absolute disaster. We've got away with it so far. Do you even you know, now? Yeah. Even now there's a bit of you. Uh, there's less anxiety. I feel a you know finally in my 50s i feel a bit more confident do you know what i mean so i now think okay right what should we do I want there can't to... have been a flute on 17 different occasions <laughs> can it that we, that we've but got you know this right. i just you know uh, but i did and um um and and i i don't know what it is but i always feel that i've been lucky in that i think my skill is being able to spot talented people and to allow them the room in which to play to their strengths. I enjoy that. You know, yeah. I enjoy thinking, okay, what do I like about this actress that she's very good at, you know, looking puzzled and uh, uh, and she's very good at, uh, you know, I, I remember talking to Sally Phillips when we were doing I'm Anna Partridge and she said her, her character, she was writing down thoughts and her character's absolute nightmare would be being stuck in a lift with Alan Partridge because she would want to burst out laughing and ha would have nowhere to hide. And instantly I just thought, but that's perfect. Because I haven't seen that in a comedy. Right. A character who actually laughs at the other character. In a co in sitcom, everyone is saying funny things, but no one's laughing because it's just meant to be the, yeah. how they talk. Yeah. How about if somebody actually... And we built that in so that Sophie, the character that she plays, just has to leave the room whenever Alan just says something. You know, it's things like that. So I feel that's what I'm good at. I'm good at bringing people together and finding the right means of getting their strengths, playing, getting them to play to their strengths. And that becomes self-fulfilling because so people see that. what you give to performers and therefore they become very keen to work and with then, you. And then, you know, and obviously as the years have gone on, I've been, you know, lucky enough to be able to... But I, I do feel genuinely lucky that, you know, the first people that I ended up working with were <laughs> Chris, Morris, isn't Chris it? Morris and Steve Cook. <laughs> you know, they're, I mean, they're it's pretty lucky like, too to have, to have happened upon you at a, at a well, producer's no, meeting yeah, at the BBC. No, bless them. But, you know, I do feel... And a lot of these things are collaborative and a lot of these things are, you know, it's a pulling together of everyone. What I also like is actually the fact that we didn't all go to the same university. We yes. weren't a troupe, do you know what I mean? And of therefore we, did, we don't all speak with the same comedy voice. 
um, that actually we came together from different backgrounds. And like I was saying, Chris is radio comedy. Mm. Steve is a more kind of Manchester and then television impressions. Stand up. Well. Stand up. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Mar was a writer. You know, all that. These different... Yes. So that we came together for the programme and we've kind of then been together more or less ever since in various little combinations and ones and twos and threes you know do you do you look back on anything and 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 think does anything stand out as you don't think it did quite land uh well i've been a couple of pilots that have never seen the light of day because you know they didn't quite work or okay. there was an idea there that was interesting yeah. but you know or someone else came along and did it better and you know so so there's that i know and the second series of I'm Alan Partridge was a more, I think we were hyper conscious of the success of the first series. Um, so there was almost like a kind of slightly frenetic, frantic kind yes. of um, atmosphere to them. Did it affect the personal relationships? Did you, but the tensions... Well, it was intense. Yeah. It was intense. And I think we all needed just a bit of space. I mean, a bit of space. For me, it was a bit of space from Alan, actually, because what you do when you're writing them with Steve and with Peter Bainham is the three of you are in a room together, but there is a fourth person. That fourth person is Alan. <laughs> oh. Because the only way we can write is hearing Alan. So Steve will be Alan. And and as you know, Alan doesn't stop talking, you know, and that's part of the comedy of him, his his metaphors getting out of control and all that. <laughs> and you know, and and actually if it's been a very long day and it's eleven o'clock at night and Alan is still bleating on and still going and yeah it's kind of like uh, I see it as a kind of like brain him. planet <laughs> earth as a kind of uh, metaphor you know for shut up <laughs> shut up so yes okay get it and, and, and so you're going to need a bit of time away from Alan and, and, and if you probably, tried to squeeze another series or two out you probably wouldn't he wouldn't know, have had a 25 I, year I, I think the reason he survived is that yes. we only really do him every three or four years so we give him that space to grow privately away from us. Mm. You know, when I meet Steve outside of the, the project, and we we do speculate, what is Alan up to now? So he's a Fondly. Kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the strange it's, thing, so isn't absolutely. it? Because he's hateful yeah. and yet... No, but he's not, you know, he, no. he's well-meaning. Yes. Do you know what I mean? He, yes. doesn't, he doesn't harbour hate for other people. He's well-meaning. He's just a bit gauche, a bit kind of... Uh, you know, he, he, his social skills are not, you know, particularly refined. Um, you know, his cultural hinterland is is not everyone's. Um, you know, and but he kind of there's elements of all of us in him. And you know, I was saying to someone else the other day, he kind of he rem he everyone says that they rem Alan reminds them of someone, but mm. they can't quite remember who. Exactly, and that's probably because it's them. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it's them. That's who he reminds you of. <laughs> it, that, those little echoes, those little winces, isn't it? Those, yeah. It's, 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 um, when you when you sort of all get together, is it is it immediate? Is he back in the room immediately after yes, two or three? Yes. Years? It's, it's, I was there a couple of weeks back because they're working on a new BBC show. And I mean, it was one of the funniest afternoons I've had in a long while Must be because Must you know, be just imagining Alan in that situation and then this situation and that's you know was just fun. Yes. Um, and 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 Robin Neil Gibbons, who now write with Steve, have come in and they just get the Alan voice instantly and they they know. Uh, and actually, they're better than us. They don't make him silly. You know, they'll pull okay. back yes. and make him real, keep it real, and keep it believable. And I had a 
bit of a tendency to want just the worst thing possible to happen to Alan all the time. Of course. And actually, yes. no, it's kind of nicer, I think, that Alan, you know, he, he's kind of happy in his own skin now, Alan. Yes. I think when he was younger, he used to want to be middle-aged and he used to want to mix with business people. He didn't see himself yeah. as trendy yeah. and, do you know what I mean, and hip. Uh, now that he has got to that age, uh, he, he's kind of comfortable now. There's a great exchange in the big issue that you guest edited as part yeah. of the um, campaign for the death of Stalin, where him and um, Malcolm Tucker debate Brexit. I don't think yes. there's any prizes for guessing <laughs> which side each e yes. e each one chose. But Malcolm Tucker then, sort of, what you, a silly question to ask who your favourite creation is out of all of them. <laughs> It's not a silly question, but I, I honestly don't know. You can't know, say, because they're such I different. But, but like those saying, two seem to me saying, to be the titans, as like it were. It's like saying, who's your favourite child? Of course it is, know? yes. <laughs> but those two, are the, they would be the obvious choices for yeah. for that exercise, but yeah. also probably the obvious choices for the two characters you, 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 you've created that have broken through on an unprecedented level. Yeah, when we did, again, with the thick of it, was it was a very you know low-budget... Where did that idea come from? Uh, How did that? Uh, I'd been asked to do. Uh, uh, I think BBC Two was doing Britain's best sitcoms campaign, and and, and I was championing Yes Minister. Yes, uh, fantastic program, which still absolutely stands the test of time. The writing on it and the performing is amazing. You forget at the time that actually it was the first inkling the British public had of how Westminster worked because mm. there were no cameras or microphones in the House of Commons when it first started. It was Dick started. Crossman's diaries, wasn't it? Or, 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 or uh, they were one of the root, one of the sources. Uh, uh, one of those. And then um, a couple of people who'd worked for James Callaghan, right. Bernard Donoghue, okay, and then, oh, yeah. then a couple of Thatcher people as well so proper stories driving yes. the comedy uh, and um and even though it's like a traditional sitcom with a audience there it's i mean the speeches are fantastic the writing's fantastic um and i did this and and it, it researching it i got to just watch every episode of yes minister again and, and realized how relevant it was yeah. but the setting was a bit outdated in terms of the the you know, in, in Yes Minister, it's all about the the chief civil servant trying to stop things from happening. And I thought, well, that under Blair's kind mm. of system, it's not about that. It, the civil servant's been shoved to one side. It's the special advisors yes. trying to tell the minister what to do. And then it's the pressure, the centralising control of Number 10 via the prime minister's enforcer, Malcolm Tucker, pulling them back and saying, you're going on news now and this is what you're going to say. This is the line, you know, this grid system of thinking that you can manage politics on a day-by-day -day basis and it then unravelling because events always take over. <laughs> and, and, and it was, I mean, Alistair Campbell was in mind, was he? Oh, or was absolutely. That... Alistair, uh, Peter Manson, but also there's a whole team of anonymous, they were called the enforcers, yes. the, the kind of the dementors at number 10 who visited the ministries. And, and I also, uh, Malcolm, as one of those, really, a sort of anonymous figure, really. Um, uh, so... So that was it, but it was a very. Uh, so I thought, well, let's update it. But you know, BBC Four was just kicking off. Rolly Keating was. I never knew there. That, that. I mean, it it, it almost. I, I don't know. Diminishes it slightly when you say you were just trying to update Yes Minister. I, I don't. Know. <laughs> I never really never crossed my mind that that was know. the well, genesis. That, that was the genesis. Yeah, and I actually met up with Anthony Jay and talked to him about it, and he said, you know, I said maybe I shouldn't name the party. No, maybe I should name the parties, and he said, no, no, don't. Don't name the parties uh, because you, you'll kick yourself. You you'll be kick then, yourself. Yeah, you? I mean, it's very clear at the yes. time. 
It's but. interesting because the first series of Yes Minister went out when it was still Callahan, and actually Jim Hacker is a bit left wing. Yes, and it's the second series where he shifts a bit more to the right because it was under Thatcher then. Um, uh, so, uh, and and I and BBC Four didn't have very much money. I said, look, I've got this idea. I think if I get you know five people, find a disused set of offices and two cameras, not worry too much about the look of it. Just follow them. I make it gritty, real, improvised. This, this, this grows from your radio, from the fact yeah, that you yeah, made yeah. your you early programs without it. knowing what you were doing, but yeah. you got it made. So you thought, yeah. now you do know what you're doing. You've got you've got the best of both worlds, the confidence and the experience. And and, and just let me get on with it. Yes. And, and they and I remember Rolly saying, "Well, I haven't got very much money. What can you do with this amount?" And I, I thought I could probably make three half-hour shows with that in about eight days. And and that's what how we do did, you do you that know? calculation? How does that work? In I just head? thought. Um, so you're thinking I need to pay him, 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 and him. <laughs> well, yeah, get people who are not going to pay, ask for an. Sure. You, obviously, with the success of the thick of it, the production <laughs> the costs went, went up, up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> as everyone became very, <laughs> no, and quite rightly so. Uh, um, <clears throat> and I just thought it's an experiment, you know, an experiment, and um, and I got a couple of writers in that I had worked with briefly on a couple of other topical little shows that never quite came off, and. Um, who, who were Jesse Armstrong and Simon Blackwell and Tony Roach. Yeah. And we just mucked about. And there was that air of, you know, if you if I had known then what it was going to turn into, I would have been petrified. Right. But it was just this, well, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is the show goes out and it's fine and it goes away, you know. That's the worst. And it was a low... Um, it wasn't like a high-profile stage. Right. It was BBC Four, yes, and it was a you know a small viewing figure digital channel that had just started up and was slightly esoteric and had documentaries about artists on it as well as you know a, a, you know, a, a returning tape of the Isle of Wight festival from 1977 that they show every sure. Saturday night. Yes. you know, and all grey whistle tests and stuff like that. So you know, it's not you know, it's 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 fine, and therefore. It, it says it's a license to experiment, really. So rather than saying this is what it is and it mustn't change, it's like okay, well let's just give it a go. And I was encouraging the, the cast to improvise, and we had these rehearsal periods in a church hall in advance where we just mucked about and you know develop. And we did, and and this was utilizing what we'd learned on Alan Partridge, especially right. I'm Alan Partridge, where we do a lot of improvising in advance, not yes, actually on, not on set. Everything's locked down on set, but in advance, we're, we're always advising. Um, so this was utilising that. Um, um, and we found this disused set of offices that were owned by Diageo. It was an old, next to an old Guinness kind of factory um, that were about to be knocked down, which is why in episode <laughs> six of the episode six of the first series of The Thick of It, they're in an entirely new set of offices because the old ones have gone, <laughs> have been destroyed. Um, um, and we got, uh, you know, a, a team in. Uh, I, I, I remember when Peter Capaldi came in to audition for Malcolm. Malcolm wasn't Scottish in the script. He was just Malcolm. And Peter, I said to Peter, try and sack me. I'm a minister. Try and sack me. Be pleasant about it. I'll resist. Choose your moment to then just wow. completely turn. And Peter tells me afterwards he was already in a foul mood because he'd been to another edition that morning that hadn't gone well and he'd had enough. And yeah. He just hated directors. This kind of smart-ass guy who did the day-to-day is asking him to come along. <laughs> That's going to be a load of nonsense. Do you know what I mean? And, um, and when he turned and became tough Malcolm, 
and Steely Malcolm and stared at me, give me the Malcolm stare, I thought, A. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I want to leave mm-hmm. and B, there's Malcolm Tucker. You know? Straight away. <laughs> Straight away. Yeah. Who else auditioned? Is that, is that an Well, no, no, that, no. Because uh, what I like doing on auditions is if there are people I really like, but not quite right for that part mm. or the part's already gone, I store them up and I think of something. So Alex McQueen also auditioned. He was the very first guy to audition for Malcolm. Okay. And he was more of a minister, civil yes. servant type. So we invented the character of Julius Nicholson for right. him, the blue skies thinker. Yes, yes. Um, so it's always nice to kind of, and sometimes it might be someone I saw four or five years ago, and I've always thought there must be a thing for that person if we could just ah I know we should get hold of her yeah I remember her from four years back you know that sort of thing I kind of enjoy that you love talent I I love I love finding the right thing for them yes. do you know what I mean yes. I love seeing them and then I love being surprised because because if you found the right thing for them then they feel confident about filling that space and trying out some stuff themselves. And if they're confident, then some really good stuff comes out and good stuff comes out that you hadn't expected. There's a moment in the first episode of uh, The Thick of It where Malcolm says to Hugh Abbott, the the minister, something like, that thing that you announced earlier today, you didn't announce. And, And he says, well, Malcolm, I did. And there were people watching me doing it. And... After several takes, I said, I'll just free it up. And Peter launched into this. He says, uh, you didn't do it. You did do it. They know you did it. But they also know you didn't do it when I tell them that you didn't do it. Because if they do say that you did it, when I tell them that they you didn't do it, then they won't know what it is you do tomorrow or the next day when I tell them what it is that you're going to do tomorrow or the next day. And then, and it was just this... It was just this whole magnificent summation of the complete absurdity of the situation. And he got it. That just spilled out wow. of Peter. And you need, as clever, soon as you he, need to clever people. As soon as he finished saying it, he burst out laughing because oh, he just wow. thought it was so absurd. But we managed to, you know, in the programme, yeah, yeah. get the cuts just before he burst out laughing. Because he had no idea where this was coming from. You know, it completely was completely natural. And it's this immersion in the character. Gosh. You know, so what we do is we we give them the script but we give them the research we get some experts in to talk to the cast about what life is like working in a department uh, uh, and so they can feel 
part of that kind of world, you know. And it then means that, you know, the neurons start working in their brain along the lines of someone who does work in that world. You know? Which is rare for an actor, isn't it? I mean, actors must love, rarely, a certain type of actor must yeah. love the idea that they're part of the creative process Absolutely. in a way that they yeah. rarely get to be. But the best actors do that anyway. They, with any part they get given, they go off and they research it. Sure. They follow the, the, the real people. You know, if they're being if they're being a firefighter, they'll go and spend you know a week with a fire yes, team or something. Yes, you know, yes. the best actors do that anyway. So this is really an extent. And they might change their lines slightly unless, Just, unless yeah, they're because sort of, they've picked something up saying actually the firefighters would say this rather than that. You know, yeah. and and yeah. again, did you know pretty much immediately that something very very special was? Yeah, happening? so it's when he did that, and also when he did the Malcolm Stair to the the first minister. Cliff Lawton in the opening scene the minister is sacked and then Hugh Abbott turns up and when he does the stare as in don't you fucking ever <laughs> shout at me again do you know who I am that look Surely. that's when I turned to someone by the monitor and said um, I think this is going to work yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 I bet but again you don't think and it will, you know it, you'll make a film about it and, no, of course. and you'll do an American version will there be any more I, I've ne you never say never, but at the moment I just nobody feels inclined to do it. I just feel you know politics has moved on into such an absurd land now that to do a kind of fictionalized version of it won't won't hold up. It, you know politics is so stupid. It kind of needs people to uh, describe the seriousness of what's going on. If they can describe that seriousness in a funny way, great. That's but the it's, trick. Do you know what I mean? I do. To, to turn it into a kind of sitcom, yes. I think, is is not the right thing to be doing at the moment. Because because things are so serious. Things, things are so serious and yet demented so at crazy. the same time. Yes, because, of course, with Veep, you, you tackled the American political yeah. establishment as well. But again, it's a political establishment that bears as much resemblance to the one we've got now I as know, Malcolm I, Tucker does to I, I Theresa know, May. And I'm glad I'm not doing Veep now because I, I don't think I could find a comedy in a kind of fictionalised version of Washington. I mean, they're, they're lucky in that she's left Washington and she's no longer in office. So it, it looks at that kind of hinterland, that sure. kind of twilight, yes, <laughs> twilight yes. era of a politician. Yes. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, the other element... This was my clever question that I prepared in advance, <laughs> which was that in order to really satirise politics, you have to have a really deep understanding of politics. And a sort of love of it, actually. Of course. And, you know, and so this is it. where I ask you to explain what's happened with regard to Trump and Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, right. <clears throat> How much time have you got? Uh, as long as I mean, you want. I mean, so did... many things have happened. The, the thick of it was very much born out of well specifically it was the Iraq war mm. and I then made my I asked myself well how can one person i.e. Tony Blair yes. get away with that it tells you that there are no checks and balances that the Prime Minister if, if he or she has a majority a healthy majority can do anything do you know what I mean absolutely yeah, anything yeah. there is no there is no uh, there's no judiciary that can step in there's no second chamber that yeah. can you know there are no checks and balances um, so there's that. Also, the tendency for politicians to to point themselves so forensically at the middle, the, the middle England, that you know the one hundred thousand in marginal constituencies who will swing it either mm. way, concentrate exclusively on them, taking for granted their left of centre or right yeah. of centre cool. core support. So not speaking to them. What you then get over the years are fewer and fewer people taking part in elections. 
because they feel they're not being spoken to. Sure. So why why take you know uh, and 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 therefore you get governments in power on the back of fewer and fewer votes. You know, in the in 1950s, turnout used to be like 88%. And the two main parties together used to get about 90% mm. of the vote. I remember Blair's third government got something like 34% yeah, of the vote, yeah, yeah. and yet still a working majority. Now, that's the system just fallen into disrepair, really. And there hasn't really been a party with any kind of decent majority since sure you know gordon brown when he took over had to deal with uh losing his majority yes. uh <clears throat> get well it reducing as just wear and tear yeah. losing by elections <laughs> cameron came in on a coalition sure uh uh he he narrowly won his next election which then theresa may squandered mm. so again we're now in a kind of bizarre coalition that isn't a coalition with a party thinking it can run the entire Brexit strategy, the biggest thing to have happened to Britain since the Second World War, as a minority government, mm. you know, without any kind of consensus. So that's why democracy has gone into despair. And, and, and you therefore uh, get two sections of the political spectrum getting bigger and bigger and bigger, feeling not listened to. Yes, you get people on the left and on the right feeling not listened to. So they gravitate towards people who are not like conventional politicians. Because because if the conventional politicians aren't listening to you, what do you do? We'll go for, you know, anyone who isn't a politician. So you've got your Nigel Farage's and your Jeremy Corbyn's in America. You've got your Donald Trump's and your Bernie Sanders, you know. And, and, and that's what's happening. It's this polarisation and, and the collapse of the centrist approach to politics because it became so dementedly centrist that it was at the expense of, of everything course. else yes. you know so well, there you go that's absolutely bang on there you are so that answers <laughs> and i don't know if it's an a-level question well, i know it's right all six formers are allowed to the question out of the water so you yeah. see it presumably have been less surprised than some of us by recent developments well, because was, they make sense this was you. why with the death of stan i was mm. looking at dictators as a topic and i was you know the idea was to come up with a fictional dictator Say, say Britain turned into a dictatorship, you know, how would that work? Because I kind of sense this, this, you know, not just a fraying at the edges, but a fraying at the centre as well, this coming apart of the political, the democratic consensus. I mean, consensus is now seen as a dirty word, yes, especially in America. Mm. You know, whole uh, politicians, um, their entire career in America is is based on saying no. Mm. You know, I stopped them doing this. Mm. I made sure they overturned that. We will repeal this. We're going to vote down any attempt. We to will do hurt that. them. Yeah, yeah. Rather than helping them, we're going no, to no exactly. Them. A, you know, and yes. and and it's you know, and the American system was designed to be about consensus. It was it was designed to be. Um, absolutely inoperable unless the parties came together and That's compromised right. yeah. and now at the moment the parties don't want to come together and compromise and therefore it's absolutely inoperable nothing happened which is why you know trump is so uh, angry that sure. he can't get anything done because the parties won't cooperate and obama was so frustrated that he and couldn't obama get as much done that you he know, wanted he, to. The, the bulk of his stuff was done in these first two years yes. when he controlled both houses mm. uh, and after that very little done it was Stimey. more a kind of tone 
he could say as a president he said you could at least establish a yes, tone yes. a character to the country sure legislatively you're you're much weaker but you can at least you know and in terms of executive orders you can on a temporary basis you can affect how the government is run but but that's it really yeah you can't do structural change so when no. when you cut you you were thinking of a dictator yeah was that as a warning were you sort of conceiving a little bit yes a little bit and i hadn't decided whether it was going to be funny or straight okay you know there's something about doing something like that great film the battle of algiers which is a fantastic uh, oh it's amazing uh it's a it's a fiction but it is about the french in algeria and the the war there but it's shot like a documentary it's ultra realistic yeah yeah um there's something of that or you know some of those Things the BBC used to do in the 70s, like threads and yes. uh, very, very realistic. And if I was thinking along those lines and then I thought, or oh, it could be funny. I don't know. But then the Stalin thing came along. It just by accident landed on your lap. Yeah. Because it's a graphic novel. It's a gra- French graphic novel. I was approached, asked I was interested and read it and thought, well, this is the story. This is it. I don't actually need to invent anything. Right. I've forgotten, of course, this all happened. Yes. Why don't we just do that? You know? And, and then, I, I, and also it, takes the pressure away from the, you know people maybe trying to if it's set in modern day people would go so what is this is this about trump or is this about oh, yeah. oh, okay. what is it is this yes. you know what who's, who, who's, who's it an allegory be? for what's you know it? exactly yes. so so that's what that, that and it, is the graphic yeah. novel laugh out loud funny i mean did it have you rolling it's absurd on? i right. mean a lot of our comedy dialogue has been written for the movie but the situations in it are absurd and are funny but but are also true so can be frightening and that's what appealed to me about it so in the film i've not tried to replicate the novel but i've tried to hold on to what it was about the novel that attracted to me in the first place and this is the the collaborative process is you david schneider and ian martin Martin, in an office together writing together yeah or by via via you know via email you know come together for a couple of days and just hammer out the beats of each scene and then just play about with it via email writing and rewriting when you were describing all your other um uh, work and the collaborative nature of it I, I, i i just found myself wondering whether or not you gave the actors in the death of Stalin these sort of freedoms. I, I suspect not, but... There isn't as much improvisation. No. But what we did was we gave them all their um, biographical research, um, you, okay. know, a whole, yes. you know, a whole like pack of information about their characters. They themselves also did a bit of stuff. And then we got them in early. Um, we, we rehearsed for two weeks in a, in a church hall, um, just just so they could learn not just about themselves but about each other's character uh, and and so that we could work out funny stuff sure ensemble stuff i mean you've got these and great chemistry as well the chemistry yes. you know when you've got the cast like, is incredible michael palin yeah. and paul whitehouse and simon russell beale and jeffrey tambor and steve buscemi you know and and paddy constein and jason yeah. Isaac in a room you know <laughs> you think okay well let's, let's <laughs> chuck in a few <laughs> new ideas here and see where it goes you know does yeah. anyone ever turn you down Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it's people who are used to seeing the whole script, right? And uh, but and this was close to a whole script, wasn't it? This was more it set was in stone version, than anything it else. It was you... a version of right. the script, yeah. Yes. But they still don't quite get the whole. So you want me to come in a couple of weeks early, and yeah. well, I'm not sure I can improvise. Got you. Okay. You know, and and, and there's there's that element, or or it might be people who. Say in an ideal world, it'd be great to collaborate, but I'm only free for these three days. Okay, Can yes, you do all course. my scenes on those three days? And I'd say, well, I, I can't because the way I want to shoot it is different from that. You know, so it doesn't work out. Or it's just simply, 
you know, I don't get involved in any of the negotiations. Got you. But, you know, maybe the money isn't quite right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you there's know, some prosaic considerations. You know, it can be, you know, or another office come in and actually I've got a bigger part in that. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to do that. Really sorry, but it'd be lovely and to work with you. the director's job you know, is to keep the plate spinning. You know, and it's, it's understandable and, uh, and it happens all the time. And, you know, I felt lucky to have arrived at this cast. Um, but, you know, you, you 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 with every project you have an ideal in mind, but you never necessarily get there. Of course, you know the one uh, person you, put you it think like is ideal for this part might not be available for another year and a half. It, it's odd that because you know? it makes perfect sense what you say. But I asked because yeah. so, so many of your characters, and very much in the death of Stalin as well, one can't quite imagine anybody else playing them. But that's part of the process. That's isn't part it? of the process. Yeah. And also, once they say yes, we yes. then think, oh right, we know that Steve Buscemi is crucial. That's the voice in now your head. Now let's rewrite some of these okay. scenes. Now. Yes, 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 mind, yes, because he know. does this. He, you he know, thinks uh, like that exactly. And, and then I have conversations with them about the characters and we feed that into the script as well, their own take on what the characters should feel like and so on. Um, so they're starting to own the characters yes. so that by the time we get to the shoot, it should be that you can't imagine anyone else playing this part because we've written this part now specifically yes. for that actor. So it fits. Yeah. It fits. It's yeah. a perfect fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the premise, and correct me if I've got this wrong, Yes. is that his strang Stalin's stranglehold upon Russia was so complete and upon everybody in his circle and, and the circles that go out from him in yeah. ripples that his death was almost impossible to contemplate, let alone prepare for. Absolutely. They hadn't prepared for it, yes. They hadn't. And interestingly, America hadn't prepared for it is that, either. No. The Ein Ein uh, Einstein? The no. um, Eisenhower administration didn't have a plan for what would happen when Stalin wasn't around. Uh, and certainly Russia wasn't prepared for it. Everyone just thought he would live forever in a strange kind of way, you know. Um, so it's a shock. That's and, it, the and, thing. And, and one of the earliest challenges is to accept that he is dead for, for yes. all of the kind of main, yes. or for most of the and, main and characters. And Beria, Simon Russell Beale, who plays Levanti Beria, the chief torturer and head of the equivalent of the KGB, the NKVD, you know, uh, um, he actually, and, and in real life also, was relieved that Stalin was dead. He, he, even though he'd spent 20 years as Stalin's henchman, rounding people up and getting them shot, he actually thought um, Russia couldn't stand any more of that and it needed reforming. Um, so he wanted Stalin to die. And uh, Khrushchev's memoirs and Svetlana Stalin, Stalin's daughter's memoirs, talk about Beria just being obsessed with the body as, he was, as Stalin was like, poking it touching it just almost like wanting to make absolutely sure he was dead almost kind of reveling in it yeah he said his behavior was just absolutely macabre and bizarre because you know? of what had preceded i mean well, you, you can't apply normal modes of behavior to and, it and it's, this is absolutely true in the gulags people were crying when they heard that stalin had died you know the guy who put them there they were still because he also because he was cult leader and no one can imagine any flaw in the cult leader, a lot of them had told themselves they were in the gulags because of someone else. Sure. Some low underling who had a grudge against and them. If, and and if, if he knew, if yeah, Uncle if he Joe knew, he'd knew. get me out of here. Yeah, yeah, How yeah. can I get this message to Stalin that there's been a mistake, you know? All uh, those that did think that he put them there but still also saw him as as the the, the, the face of Russia, the Soviet Union. 
and that's now dead. You know, yeah. what we, it's interesting. A lot of um, under Khrushchev, well, first Beria uh, freed a lot of prisoners from the gulags, and Khrushchev uh, expanded that. A lot of the people who worked in the gulag, who, who were in the gulags, stayed in those areas because there was work there. Because these were prison camps, but they were production plants, and they were used as slave labor. When they were freed, obviously they had to hire people, so there was jobs. So a lot of them stayed and worked in the gulags that they'd been imprisoned in. If if Trump hadn't happened, yeah, I would still subscribe to to a kind of sense that holocausts and gulags and that period of history was undertaken almost by a different species from the one I it's belong bizarre. to. And then you remember, you remember those scenes in Bosnia, yes, uh, of course, Srebrenica, and the 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 very thin bodies. Yes, behind course. the wire in the in the kind of prison camp, and that was on uh, our doorstep. And then you know in Cat uh, in in Spain in yes. Catalan, the the police going into schools to stop people voting, bringing back memories of Franco. Yes, and, yes. You know, uh, and then we have um, the rise of the far right in Germany and Austria, and and Le Pen in France, and and then you know the authoritarianism of Trump in America. You know, and we shot the movie before Trump even looked like he was going to win the nomination of his party. And yet it is this strange kind of warning of, you know, this might happen again if you're not careful. That democracy is not a given. It's not a permanent state. Yes. I mean, that's a remarkable sort of circumstance coincidence for you in a way uh, yeah to, it's to, been great for us <laughs> <laughs> every cloud <laughs> yeah but i mean seriously because it does it focuses the mind on on um precisely what you describe as stalin somehow being still revered by the people he's abusing and lied to which is the yes, where trump and you is get the trump supporters saying yeah he hasn't done this and that but you know what we're still going to vote for him because he's sticking it to the the establishment you know yes it's even though he's of, got a golden lift and there's a kind of masochism going on, a strange uh, kind of group masochism. And you get it in Brexit. You know, the 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 parts of the UK that will be most badly yeah, affected absolutely. by the exit are the ones that voted most heavily to exit. It's a kind of, yeah, bring it on. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when World War One was declared and people were going, I'm going off to fight. Yes. And people saying, no, but you will get killed. Ah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> alternative facts. Alternative yeah, facts. Ah. We'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake news. And then it's just coming back with, you know, one ear and, and no arms. If you you're know? lucky. And it's, uh, it's bizarre. It, well, it's bizarre. yes, and then it's ongoing. Um, yeah. We probably haven't really communicated how funny the film is. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, and, and I mean, the, 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 the slapstick in it. It's not just, yes, it's not just yeah. satire and political yeah. comedy. It's, yeah. It, 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 Covers an went, awful lot of ground. I went back and looked at The Great Dictator, the Charlie Chaplin mm. film, which has got a lot of fantastic, funny set pieces, as well as scenes set in the Jewish ghetto. Yes. And and, and references to prison camps. And, and one reference to gas, actually. I can't, yeah. yeah. It's years since I've watched it. But that, that, that light know. and shade, the nuance, yeah. the, the motion. So where does the comedy come from in The Death of Stalin? It comes from people being too scared, you know, scared about what to do. And looking at each other to see, you know, nobody wanted to be the first person to speak. And if you are the first person to speak, looking at everyone else to try and work out what it is you should be saying. Uh, I, I think it's that, really, 
Which everybody recognises. Which everybody, you know, everyone's been in a meeting where, you know, it's the, the boss, the boss has said, uh, you know, Sam, what do you think? Um, and then you look to the boss <laughs> and to you, the, you know, and just, I think, you know, there's and then a lot everyone, of that. Oh, yes, great. Oh, yeah, very good idea. Yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah. It's like bystander syndrome as well. When someone's yes. getting shouted at on the tube and everybody wants to intervene, but until one, and then when one person does, yes, and 10 other people discover their, you, you wait for somebody to yeah. to lead the line. Yeah. So, I mean, was it a period of history that you, you'd studied? Were you, were you... A little bit. I'd studied more. Uh, I mean, I, I love classical music, especially 20th century classical music and Shostakovich in particular, who was a Soviet, you know, grew up, all his music was under, it was in the Soviet, during the Soviet regime. And there was someone who Stalin criticized one of his operas yes. and he just thought, that's it, I'm done for. And he packed a suitcase and he just waited by the door every night for about a year and a half and then realized, oh, they're not coming for me. But the work dried up for a bit and he ended up having to just write film scores just to make ends meet. Um, so that that period I kind of was familiar with and that kind of how something uh, political can affect what you think of as non-political, like symphony music, orchestral yes. music. Yes. You know, it had to be written in a certain way and not in another way. Um, That's that what totalitarian means almost, isn't it? it yes, or, yes, it is, isn't it? It's like telling you how to think and what culture you should have and... And that's the only yeah. way you can sustain the cult is by not letting people question it. And that is exactly. that why they hate artists, fascists, because well, art is imagination and yeah. imagination leads to empathy. They, they, they feel threatened by them, you know, because they don't quite understand it. They don't get it. No. They don't get the fact that art is not literal. No. You know, and that's why comedy is interesting under totalitarian... I mean, they circulated joke books about Stalin. Right. Which you could be shot if you had one in your possession. But and still... Yet, and yet the joke, you know, being able to laugh at them is such a weapon within your own sense and of... And they hate it. I'm still human because yes. I can make a joke about it. You do yeah. wonder whether Barack Obama directing all those jokes at Trump during the correspondence That's dinner explains a lot of what's yeah, happened absolutely. subsequently. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because the psychodrama, the personal psychodrama is immense. Yeah, You've yeah. got a massive hit on your hands again, haven't you? I mean, the the, the early notices have been incredible. The, yeah, but it's, you know, I mean, in the end, the proof will be in how many people want to come out and see it in the cinema, you know? Sure. Uh, how many people will go, yeah, I've heard about this. Sounds funny. It's about Stalin, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is it that? Should we do that or should we do Blade Runner? You how, know, how much of a pull do you think your name is? Because I was looking at the poster on the tube on the way here. It's an Armando Yannucci film and it mentions a couple of... Um, I suppose more so than used to be. I think people yeah. now, because of vape and thick of it and yes. partridge, I think there's a kind of cumulative kind of back catalogue now that I can, uh, can rely on. But um, I still, you know, and I will be... It's amazing. Film all comes down to like the weekend, the opening weekend, in a way that television doesn't. No, you know, you start worrying about the weather, uh, right? You really? Know. <laughs> so it's like an election it's almost. Raining. God, it's... do you think people would you go and see a film in the rain, or is that good? I don't know. And it's slow not... burners are of no interest to studio bosses. Exactly. It's a kind of strange thing. Whereas television, you know how much it's going to cost, you know how many you've to make, how long course, it's to be, yes, when yeah. it will go out. And yeah. who watched it? And if it does brilliantly, you can up your prices for the next, next series. One. But you, you, it's you know, not going to so be. It's all done. Reflecting Whereas on the work film is, done. I don't know if it's going to get made. Uh, oh yeah, we've got some money to make it. I don't know if anyone's going to show it. Oh, we've got some money to show it. That's good. I don't know if people are going to come and watch it. Do you lie awake at night at all? Still at this point, worried? No, Something as no, big as I this? I don't actually. No, I don't. I don't. Okay. I I don't take my work home with me at all. Really, that's nice. 
Uh, no, I, and it's taken me, took me a little while to do that, but sure. I think once you start having kids, actually, that's yeah, when it, you know, there's no, there's no option, there's no option. No. So um, I, I'm very good at switching off in the evenings and at weekends, really. Um, Obviously, when you get in the middle of a production, it's full on, it's, it's all hours, but it's for a kind of limited amount of time. And do you have, for the death of Stalin, a, a, a threshold? Do you have a point, have you got something in mind that will, in your mind constitute success with uh, a, a, in terms of say, no I mean I don't know what like the box office should be or uh, I, I think you know if we get through this weekend with you know reasonably good reviews and it, you know the distributor is happy with the yeah. people the amount of people that have come I think that's fine you know that is, that's I'm not interested it's lovely if it goes on and Sure, and there's you know the the whole awards. But you move on. You you move. You yeah, can't. You I'm don't spend do your life thing. looking in the no, rearview no, no. mirror. Which leads me to my final question, yes. Amanda. You know, she. What's next? What's next is a movie of uh, David Copperfield. I'm a big Dickens fan, and I want to do David Copperfield. <laughs> One awful minute. I thought you meant the magician. No, of course not. <laughs> so that would be great, and well, that's another you, opportunity no, to have an amazing cast. If you'd it? said for one awful moment, I, I I thought you'd meant the magician, what would you have done if I said yes, I do mean the magician? Well, I'd have styled it out somehow. <laughs> I'd have styled it out. I'd have my training in local radio like Alan yeah, yeah, Partridge yeah. did. I'd have been all right. Thank you ever so much. Oh, that pleasure. Was a real pleasure. That's been great. Thank you. Thank you. And there we are, four in the bag, Armando Iannucci, who in some ways, I'm joined as ever for, for this post-match analysis by my producer Richard, in some ways he pulls together a lot of what we've done on previous episodes because Alistair Campbell, of course, is the basis of Malcolm Tucker. And then when Russell Brand and, and, and Robert Webb have been here, we've sort of discussed comedy and politics and the interplay. And Armando Iannucci really is, is the godfather of all of it. He lived up to expectations. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> what a fascinating yeah. man. He's really sort of like followed a through line all the way through so far up to episode four. It, it, yeah, it's almost like we planned it, which yeah. of course we didn't. It'd, it'd all go off the rails. <laughs> don't let on. But the question I asked him, and I, and I had, I don't prepare many questions in advance because it, it, it sort of robs you of the will to listen to the answer to the last question you asked if you've got the next one in the barrel already. Mm-hmm. But when I asked him to explain what had gone on in politics, that that was just. That was straight out of a, of a sort of PhD thesis. It really it? was, wasn't it? And I think that kind of shows the kind of level of brain that we just had sitting on this seat you know, 10 minutes ago when we were recording this. Um, yeah, there's no one else like him working in British politics. Uh, sorry, well, yeah, there politics you go. and comedy <laughs> and the crossover, you're right. Yeah, That's... there's no one else like him. And uh, I mean, sort of the highlight for me was that listening to their talking about the creation of Malcolm Tucker and... Alan Partridge and all these kind of iconic characters but then yeah you asked him that question and off he went straight off so jealous could you imagine of being in on the ground floor of any of those (laughs) any of those projects and creations no but then I suppose when you're in those moments you don't really think this is going to become an iconic piece of television you just think this is a laugh I bet they did with Malcolm (laughs) I bet they knew because they've got so much in the in the locker by then they must have known that it looks like the stars have aligned once more it was interesting when he was saying that uh, initially he didn't have a Scottish accent yeah and then I mean, that just completely brought the characters together. It was perfect. Yeah, uh, well, I enjoyed that a lot, and I I hope he did as well. I'm sure he did. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.